Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the November edition of the Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I am good, my friend, and I'm excited. We've got some good papers, and I think it's going to be a great month. Yes, excellent. Uh, news, of course, it's not too late. It's nearly too late, but it's not too late to register for Simulation Reconnect uh, at Bond University in a couple of weeks' time uh, in conjunction with Simulcast. We're just having a one-day seminar, getting a lot of our friends together, giving some short talks. And, of course, we're featuring Gabe Breedy as uh, one of our keynote speakers. So uh, if you want to have a look, it's on the Simulcast website, Simulation Reconnect. It's in one of the tabs, or you can actually just Google for Simulation Reconnect Bond University. So um, I'm looking forward to it, Ben. Yeah, I cannot wait. It's going to be good fun, and uh, it'll be really nice just to see everyone again. It will indeed. Uh, all right, so Ben, lots to talk about. We've got a bit of a deep dive on decision making, thinking about debriefing and the roles of debriefing. But we're going to start with a paper that I'm going to talk about uh, from the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. As we know, relatively new journal on the block. Deborah Nestel is the editor in chief, and they've been doing this interesting thing that has got a lot of content coming out of that journal at the moment. Uh, which is this short reports on simulation innovation supplement where they really went looking for just good ideas that people were doing. And this is one of those. So this is a paper titled Daily Team Introductions and Simulation Education to Improve Team Performance. And this is by Rayo et al. And that et al. includes Sonia Twig, who is one of our colleagues, the Gold Coast. But this is actually set at the other institution she works, and that is Logan Hospital. And uh, they report on this Resus Drills project, which, and I'm going to quote from them here, aim to increase team familiarity and establish regular supported practice of local protocols and important resuscitation topics. So this was in the emergency department of what you'd describe as a, a medium-sized emergency department, busy place. Uh, and each day they got the Resus Pod team together for about 20 minutes. They introduced the team and they did a short, sharp simulation session. They had 12 different scenarios that they went through and they were pretty typical things that you might think uh, are high on the priorities for people in ED, uh, cardiac pacing, intubation, massive transfusion protocols, uh, resuscitation of babies. And they just did this literally as a short uh, skills and drills type of exercise facilitated by uh, one of their sim team uh, and then went back to work. So it sounds like a good thing to do. I know lots of other people do this and they make mention there. And I know from talking to the people who are doing it, they really were also trying to capitalize on this idea of mental rehearsal as well as just spending time together. Uh, and Ben, I, I think a lot of us are aspiring to do this, but actually find it quite hard to do. Is that fair to say? I think that's very true. And uh, so part of my excitement for nominating this article is just watching someone else succeed at that <laughs> in many ways. And they yeah. do acknowledge that COVID made it a lot harder as well after that. Uh, so they did an evaluation and they used a pre and post, post survey approach. And uh, one of the things that I took from their pre survey is that only 31% of their team knew the names of their team members before this. And uh, I'll be very clear and say that's probably the situation in our emergency department on most resource shifts as well. So, uh, you know, it's not like this isn't a needed intervention. Uh, but then in their post surveys, 
they presented a fair bit of data, but unsurprisingly, I think 90% of people found it extremely useful. Uh, they had some quantitative results, but they also did some thematic analysis on some free text. Uh, in terms of how were they useful, uh, people talked about some of the simulation factors as enablers and barriers. Uh, people really talked about getting to know the resus team. Uh, reflection was one of the other themes and the fact that this also served as a bit of a needs analysis. I imagine if you're doing the massive transfusion protocol mini scenario and you go, gee, I wonder where that pathway is and where I'll find it in the real world. So that's extremely valuable. And then, of course, some actual upskilling and, and core clinical knowledge. So I thought this was uh, you know, a nice, short, sharp description of a short, sharp intervention that can make a big difference in a day to a uh, clinical team. And it does seem to reinforce a lot of the things we've been talking about and we're quite biased towards about using simulation to catalyze getting people together. Uh, and I think the other thing, and, and they make mention of this though, the it does underline for me the central role of simulation educators in building culture and shaping relationships. And uh, I know from talking to Sonia that this has been hard for them to sustain in part because of the importance of that role in making this happen. So yeah, you chose the article, Ben. Is it did it live up to what you might have hoped? It did absolutely, and it just I guess makes me reflect on how to do this. Uh, well, in our hospital, we've certainly got a very enthusiastic consultant who's been trying for a while to get uh, intubation drills happening twice a week. And just the time versus the patient pressure has uh, gradually made that hard. I think probably uh, having played with you and Eve a bit lately with VEMS, I wonder whether there is a possibility to just have a pack and focus on maximizing that getting to know each other roles and goals and names and then potentially doing more of a mental sim rather than a full sim if we're really struggling with getting the equipment out, finding someone to run that and clean that and sort out who's going to short stay and all that stuff. Mm, yeah, I, I really thought that because this did involve a mannequin. And I think there is this kind of sweet spot, isn't that? I know that Eve is very keen on just introducing yourselves and, and there's no doubt that's useful as well. But I like the idea of then having a real clinical task to do together. I think that cements that if you can, but there clearly is a, a sweet spot where you builds more complexity into that and it becomes a disincentive to doing it because you're going to be stuck in the recess room it'll take too long versus so somewhere in between there i think is the answer and some days it just won't happen because you're busy uh, absolutely one of the cleverest things i heard a long time ago from uh, kevin mccaffrey who's a pediatric intensive uh, care physician he was talking about in the new hospital build hoping to get uh, the met team on for every day to simulate and rehearse whoever was the sickest patient in the hospital on the ward. Mm. Uh, so from their data of who was around, rehearsing what was likely to happen on that day, as well as getting to know and meet each other from all around the hospital, uh, which I thought was very, very clever. I always thought that was kind of interesting because I know a couple of other institutions that have done a variation on that. And each time when I've asked them, do you tell the patient or the family that that's what you're doing they've kind of shifted uncomfortably in their shoes and it does raise a few interesting issues i suppose but i like the idea 100 percent, and i suspect for pediatrics at least the families are probably going to be pretty happy that their their teams are rehearsing yeah all right well we'll leave that alone ben and why don't you uh take us through some the roles of debriefers Yes, I really like this article this is called guiding intermediating facilitating and teaching brackets, gift, 
a conceptual framework for simulation educator roles in healthcare debriefing. Uh, and it's by prepare for Ben Simon butchering a French Canadian name, uh, Amanda Rose de Ardon, uh, and published in Simulation in Healthcare 2022. And this, I think, is a really, really nice article that quite elegantly summarizes some of the different roles that debriefers take on during a learning conversation. And I think it's an important one to read if you're debriefing because we actually have a lot of conversational frameworks for debriefing structures where we think about when you say what and why you're doing that. But I think actually when it comes to the big picture, we really only have fairly superficial conversations around what a debriefer actually does and what our goals are at a macro level. And I think this article in particular really highlights that there's a lot of depth and flexibility to that. So within this study, the authors filmed a simulated clinical case where two learners participate in a recess and it's got significant teamwork-based performance gaps. And then they postulated three different debriefing scenarios that might play out for those two learners. One where the learners were engaged and collaborative, one where they were arguing with one another and defensive to the debriefer, and one where a learner was emotionally distressed and quite perseverative about their performance. And the participants in the study watched the video of the resuscitation, and then they were interviewed on what their planned approach would be to those three different hypothetical scenarios, i.e. how would you approach the engaged learners, the combative learners, and the distressed learners. And then one or two months post that, they watched the resuscitation again, and then debriefed in real time, act as role-playing those three different contexts. And then immediately after that simulated debriefing, uh, they were interviewed again about the strategies that they'd used. So when analysing all of those debriefs and post-simulation interviews, the authors coded into the theme of roles, goals, and strategies. And essentially, for me at least, the really big take-home here was that the authors identified four roles that debriefers adopt in debriefing. Guiding, mediating, facilitating, and teaching. And each of those roles has different kind of goals. So if, you, if a group needs a guide then they need someone who can develop relationships and provide conversational structure. If they need a facilitator, it's someone who's seeking to understand learners' perspectives and responding to their thoughts and emotions. They might need a teacher, which is essentially that that group needs knowledge and cultivation of insights. And sometimes they might need a mediator, so someone who's either intervening in conflict or flattening hierarchy and reconciling differences. And I think if you're interested in debriefing, it's actually well worth going through tables two to five in the article in detail because they lay out some really lovely examples of the different types of strategies one might use to achieve that particular goal. So to give you just one example, in the mediating role, strategies might include using first-person plural pronouns to soften the blow of some of the observations or reframing in neutral language a particular tension. Whereas if you're in the facilitator role, you might focus more on acknowledging, validating, and paraphrasing people. So there's some really lovely discussion about the central role of psych safety in all of those roles, and also how several concepts from role theory can actually explain challenges in debriefing. So for example, when the role of the debriefer is ambiguous, or when you're feeling overloaded that some people are needing a mediator, some people are needing a teacher, and you can't do everything at once, it's going to be more likely that you're going to be stressed or you're going to have a bit of brain freeze in that moment. And I think for me, certainly when I'm teaching people about debriefing, I now refer back to this paper a lot because I really think it asks that core question, does this group right now in this moment need a facilitator, 
a mediator, a teacher, or a guide. And I think that certainly helps me step back and go, okay, let's focus on X. And I do think, Vic, I think that's a better thing to focus on probably than how do I construct the greatest AI question or have I done the take-homes the right way? Because I think if you can get that big picture stuff in place, then actually the natural conversation will become a lot easier. In Mm. terms of any thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this idea of concentrating on who you are rather than just what you do is important. Now, obviously, the what you do, the strategies are listed there in those tables, and I agree. I think the tables are fantastic. Uh, but they're not the primary thing. The primary thing is what stance you're taking, what is your role here, and then that will make you think about what your aims are and how you're actually going to get there. So I definitely like that. And I guess to wind back even a little bit, this paper Uh, one of the learning points for me is, and it was a lovely discussion of something called role theory, that is the tendency for human behaviors to form characteristic patterns in a given social context. I mean, we all think we know what roles are, but there was a very nice deep dive into that. And just, you know, explaining some things that when you hear them are pretty obvious, you know, roles are associated with social positions. Uh, They are contextually bound. They are embedded within complex and dynamic social systems. And I think that also helps us understand and why these roles of the debriefers are also more or less difficult. I mean, I do think at some level that guiding role is kind of mechanics, isn't it? You know, just getting you through the structure of a debrief. And I feel like that's the bit that certainly the people I work with who are learning debriefing, that's the bit they really find important to get right. But I think a lot of the things described in that intermediating role are pretty advanced and quite nuanced and involve recognizing that role needing to be taken as much as thinking about what those strategies are. So, yeah, super good. Yeah, I think also the discussion on sort of reclaiming the teaching role in debriefing and acknowledging that's often taught as something you are not to do when actually all of the debriefers at some point in their conversation did include some teaching and that uh, we need to stop feeling ashamed about that in some yeah, level. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think in terms of critiquing the study, well, everyone was trained in the same debriefing format, i.e. Pearls was a fairly small group. And the roles that people took on were probably likely brought out by those hypothetical scenarios, which, uh, as the article acknowledges, uh, there might be different roles that would come out in different kind of scenarios. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. When I read this, I thought, wow, they've gone to so much trouble. They've created these fake scenarios, these fake debriefs. Um, to try and create a sort of standardised thing through which to understand these roles. Uh, why didn't they just ask people, uh, you know, as other debriefing research has done? Uh, and I'm, I do not think that was a random thing. I think they were very intentional about it and, as they describe it, allowed a lot of tri- triangulation. And I don't think it meant that we got any fewer insights because they were excellent. I suppose my one big question from this is, does insight into these roles help you do them better? Um, I think it probably does, but uh, that's that's always the question, isn't it, with something that's exploratory, and, th- and they make comments that this can inform faculty development, and I think that's probably good in terms of just what you said, which is helping people to think, what does my group need right now? So totally enjoyed it. Yeah, and I, I agree with you about the complexity of the study. I wonder on reflection as you were talking Part of the discussion that I didn't highlight is that they also looked at how the debriefers got to that goal and looked at the patterns between the different debriefers. And I I wonder whether 
the fact that they didn't really find much of a pattern and then everybody did something different was also freeing, but maybe not as not what they were expecting to find. Potentially they were looking for more commonality. Mm, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that flies in the face Adam. of your debriefing <laughs> scripts, mate. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we might start thinking about now decision-making, and I'm going to uh, kick off one, the first of two articles we're going to do, and this one, the title of it is Electronic Decision Support in the Delivery Room, Using Augmented Reality to Improve Newborn Life Support Guideline Adherence uh, from a group in the Netherlands. Uh, this is by Sang et al., uh, and this is published in Simulation in Healthcare. Uh, and this is uh, a study where, re- where simulation is really the test bed for people exploring uh, how well their performance can be where the intervention is not the simulation but something within the simulation. Uh, and basically they create this environment in which to compare adherence to this um, new- newborn life support guideline uh, between those with and without an augmented reality electronic decision support tool. All right, let's unpack that. So background to this. No surprise that to the pediatrician who's listening here. Neonatal resuscitation is important. Uh, it is required in somewhere between 1% to 10% of babies, but obviously very high stakes. Uh, there are guidelines to try and make this easier for people, but adherence is pretty hard. Errors are made. There can be a high cognitive load. So maybe a decision support tool will help people, and maybe that decision support tool can be accessed by augmented reality like HoloLens. So just to give you a picture, this is what I had in my mind, Ben, so tell me if this is what you think, is that as the people doing this scenario where they're trying to look after a baby that needs resuscitation, they've got on these glasses and somewhere in the field of view of those glasses pop up various prompts. And in this case, elements of the vital signs are actually fed into there so that you're getting data about the baby's status as well as some prompts for action appearing in your visual field with these glasses on. Is that is that the picture that you had in your head? Yeah, well, I watched the video. Did you watch the video? Oh, no, I did not watch oh, the video. Oh, it's very cool. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's on a simulated mannequin. But, yeah, it's yep. literally you're sitting there looking at the mannequin and then hovering above the mannequin is a set of vitals and yep. uh, a sort of audio and text prompt saying, you know, open airway, uh, have you given compressions? Yes. Have you given breaths? Yes, no. Uh, and it responds to your voice. Did that work? Yes, no. Start ventilation, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, yeah. Very, very Quite cool. detailed. Mm? Yeah. Uh, you've got the baby's weight. It gives you the dose of well, epinephrine in their language, the dose of glucose, the tube size, the tube depth. Like this is full-on stuff. All right, so how did they actually go about evaluating whether this uh, augmented reality tool helped? So they took 29 doctors from three hospitals. They were the kind of people who would engage in pediatric resuscitations, pediatricians, neonatologists, uh, trainees or registrars within those fields. And all of them performed one of these simulated neonatal resuscitations with the aid of a, and I quote, non-obstructive nurse, we might come back to that. Uh, One group used this HoloLens with this display that we've just described and one group just did their normal neonatal resuscitation. Uh, It was the nature of the scenario was a sort of uh, post-caesarean section and they videoed that and 
interestingly to me that I always thought maybe neonatal resuscitation was very important, but not that complicated. There were 40 different tasks in the scenario. So maybe, you know, it's easy to underestimate actually by the time you assess for something and then make a decision, you can end up with a lot of different tasks. Uh, so that was more than I would have guessed being an occasional and long time ago practitioner of neonatal resuscitation. Uh, and the results were, yes, there were better compliance in that group that had the hollow lens of the 40. The group that used that had 34 um, out of 40 versus the group that didn't, 29. They made fewer errors, uh, but there was no differences in the actual time to intervention. So I'd say there was some difference. It wasn't spectacular difference. Uh and I think the sort of point I'd say is, you know, having some kind of decision support is good, uh, whether it comes in the form of a HoloLens, I think I'd still say maybe. Uh, what do you think, Ben? I thought it was very cool. And, um, you know, as you know, I'm a big VR uh, cynic when it comes to simulation. And I think this is certainly obviously not ready for prime time in real resources yet. Uh, they talked about troubles with voice recognition as soon as the room got loud, for example. But I think there's a lot here that's appealing in terms of preventing, as they highlight, errors of omission in particular. Mm. Um, so I do wonder about from an uptake perspective, I can see a lot of experts pretty strongly refusing to jump on board to have what's essentially a virtual checklist uh, put in front of their eyes. It would just be so annoying for yeah. those of us over 50. We can't have all that stuff <laughs> yeah. in our field of view or else we get very annoyed. Yeah, but I can imagine for someone who doesn't uh, resuscitate babies very often, to have that guide as well mm. could potentially be really game-changing. It's kind of an, a set of algorithm rails at present. Pretty interesting to see where that goes, particularly in terms of, I don't know, big data. If you start recording mm. both what people are doing and also what's happening to the actual baby, then you start potentially getting a fair amount of useful data on what's the right thing to do. Oh, absolutely. And and I was reminded of that brilliant work with the Safer Births group from Stavanger in Norway and what they're doing. Uh, and big data or a lot of accumulated data over time is uh, very helpful, I think, in really giving an idea about the system level performance and individual level performance. Uh, occasionally, of course, with these systems, there are unintended consequences. So sometimes it means people become over-reliant on these sources of decision support to the point where they can't then see where they're not giving good advice. Because, uh, But that said, I'm sure that we will develop all kinds of expertise with using this, and I'm sure it is the future. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can we make this point about the why, why, do, why do authors need to write in this scenario that there was a non-obstructive nurse? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and uh, if listeners don't know what we're giggling about, it's because, you know, in our time in healthcare, there have been sad traditions of having people try and do their best in simulations and then having uh, – embedded simulated participants or nurse or confederates often nurses come in and be difficult as a way of i don't know creating amusement i think misguidedly people think it creates challenge uh, but it obviously creates very a lot of problematic stereotyping and um, uh, lack of psychological safety as well so to the point where people need to write in their scenario that the nurse is non-obstructive i can see what they're trying to do they're just trying to say they're not helpful because they're not biasing the sim as in they're yeah. not trying to bias the, the uh, participants' performance and they're not stopping it. They're just completely appropriately helpful. It's a bit like the, the APLS. Yeah, they could scenario. use the term appropriately yeah. helpful, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's 
Seems somewhat in brackets like most nurses. <laughs> well, I'll get off my uh, high horse. Anyway. All right. Well, that's enough. Well, why don't you tell me something different about decision making? Uh, also, using a bit of technology. Absolutely. So, I found this similarly really interesting. So, uh, the title of my article is "Sequential Behavioral Analysis: A Novel Approach to Help Understand Clinical Decision Making Patterns in Extended Reality Simulated Scenarios." It's by Lauren Rochlin et al. in Simulation in Healthcare, twenty twenty two. And so I got to say, I might have bitten off more than I can chew with this article, Vic, but indulge me as I try to summarize some fairly complex sounding stuff. Essentially, this article introduces two concepts that were pretty new to me, or at least terms. So there's the concept of extended reality sim, which is essentially just a big umbrella term for VR, augmented reality or mixed reality. And then secondly, sequential analysis. Uh, And that's probably where the big stuff is in this article. So they describe that extended reality bucket of sim techniques as being designed to extend your perceptions of reality by fusing or overlaying real-world components with computer-generated features or giving a fully immersive virtual experience. And then um, I think for me the thing that sort of really highlights something unexpected for me is that they described... Uh, an aspect of extended reality that I'd really undervalued, which is that some of that technology doesn't just create an interesting learning experience. It all has, also has the ability to collect a lot of nuanced data in real time, some of which is impossible in traditional SIM training. So, for example, if the tech automatically logs meaningful behavioral log data, it can then search that data for trends and correlations between different events and common behaviors or decisions. So they describe this concept of sequential analysis as a technique that helps identify sequential patterns in big data. So it helps detect whether the occurrence of one event is linked to the subsequent occurrence of another. E.g., the patient turning cyanotic might be related to the team up titrating their oxygen delivery. And as you can imagine, this could be a really fascinating tool at understanding the science of how we make decisions. So the rest of the article then aims to demonstrate the potential value of that type of analysis. And they give an example of a study that involves the extended reality sim of a pediatric airway emergency involving either a foreign body aspiration or anaphylaxis, again, using that HoloLens technology. And the software basically logged participants' actions during the scenario, and the participants got real-time feedback on their performance using the visual and sound feedback, and they could then map out common behavior sequences for successful and unsuccessful participants in those sims and see which order they chose to do things as a reflection on their decision-making as opposed to their performance. So the behaviors in the sim that had been grouped into core actions like diagnose, rescue therapy, inappropriate therapy, or secondary treatment, etc. And then the software could tell us that the most frequent pattern for successful participants in the foreign body group was rescue, then an inappropriate action, and then the and then outcome. So to be honest, for this article, the findings don't really matter so much as they're really just a demonstration of the kind of analysis that we can learn. And for me, I can imagine a world where you are you know, training, you enter a sim where you have to lead a complex scenario, and then you get data-driven feedback on not just how you performed, but where your decision patterns might differ to other people and whether you got to that uh, endpoint more efficiently or 
less efficiently than your colleagues. And I think that could be really pretty exciting stuff. I think uh, it's interesting you talk about biting off more than you can chew. It is a little bit to get your head around this whole concept of sequential analysis and uh, the patterns of behavior. I guess one of the challenge is that sequences suggest a linear process. And of course, one of the issues with uh, the way that we approach looking after unwell people is that we'd like to think it's not at all linear. And the fact that there's lots of things happening in parallel, uh, not in sequence, and that they happen as a result of the actions of multiple people. The other thing is that I think this privilege is a cognitive approach which says this is how you would think. So for instance, putting on the oximeter and listening to the lungs uh, in anaphylaxis might be a good idea. But if you see someone being wheeled in and you've had the patch through that they've the paramedic thinks they've got anaphylaxis, you might actually do the adrenaline before you do anything else. And in this situation, that wouldn't necessarily be considered correct. Uh, but that said, it doesn't diminish the beauty of the process. It just means that there's limitations if you apply it to specific situations and if you are looking after something that isn't as easily sequenced, as it were. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I do like that they highlight in the article that uh, this is a very effective tool for um, association an ineffective tool for causation as well. So I agree, it has its place, but also it could be very, very interesting in the future. I just think it's so interesting, the people that do this, you know, like I think this is so far removed from the way I would be thinking about care uh, that I'm so glad these people are putting it together and bringing all these skills and or perspectives and approaches, methods from other fields because I feel like that's one of the beauties of simulation in general. Uh, and, and this is just a great example of how we can use it to un- try and understand some of these um, things that go on in our heads. No, 100%. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, eye tracking software and uh, mm. the way that our pupils can synchronize when sharing tasks. So uh, some very cool stuff from very smart people that don't think uh, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> for a change, mm. yes. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, very tidy. Four articles, thinking about debriefer roles, thinking about short, sharp recess drills, and, and thinking about how we can use sim. Uh, as a test bed for exploring things like uh, decision-making. Super good. Thank you, Ben. A pleasure as always. Absolutely. And I will see you in two weeks at Sim Reconnect. We shall look forward to it. Thanks very much. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast.